Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Continuing, I felt that it would be appropriate for us to go to the text from which we derive this entire series, okay? And that is this two masters text. And so we're working through the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew chapter 6, we come to what Jesus says about money and about what Jesus says about possessions. And I want to tell you, he has plenty to say. He has more than we can cover. Uh, even in five weeks, we have five Sundays in September. But nonetheless, we're going to read a stretch of text today and deduce from this passage of Scripture what it is that God would say to us. Um, again, I just echo what Pastor Chad said. Awesome. Thank you for those who came. And the band just did an amazing job in leading us in all-night prayer on, on Friday. It was awesome. And uh, yeah, praise God for that. We just appreciate it. It was amazing. And then, um, and then yesterday was a good sports day. If you're a sports fanatic, if you like college football, you know, Tennessee beat a high school team. Um, beat UTC 45 to nothing. And uh, LSU beat another high school team, and Alabama beat another high school team, and so it was a great, great weekend, and, and Kentucky collapsed. Pastor Chad, Kentucky collapsed. They had them beat 21-10, the Gators on the ropes. College kickers, college dot kickers dot. I mean, just come on. I mean, it's just it really, really, really is sad how much is on the line of an 18-year-old leg, and um, the whole nation, you know. But nonetheless... Uh, Nonetheless, let's pray and fast right now because Tennessee takes on Gators in the swamp this Saturday at 12, okay? So let's just pray and fast for the next seven days, all right? That God would would meet us there, all right? (laughs) So we're working through the Sermon on the Mount. Go with me to Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 19 through 34. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Notice what the Scripture says. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, he said, there your heart will be also. He goes on and says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? How deep? For no one can serve two masters, Jesus said. Either you will, number one, hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. He goes on verse 25. Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Isn't life more than the food? And isn't the body more than clothing? If you remember back in January, I preached a message on specifically anxiety out of this passage. He goes on and says, consider the birds of the sky. He says, they don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you, Jesus said, add one moment, one, one second, one moment to your life or the life spanned by worrying? He says, and why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wild flowers of the field grow. They don't labor. They don't spin thread. Yet I tell you, they're not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed or adorned like one of these. And that's how God, if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here one day and then it's thrown into the furnace tomorrow, the fire tomorrow, Jesus says, won't he do much more for you? It's the argument of from greater to lesser. You of little faith. So don't worry saying what we're going to eat or, man, what are we going to drink? Or what will we wear for the Gentiles? We're not Gentiles as in like us, but the Gentiles as in those who don't follow Christ, the pagans. They They eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you have need of them. But seek first, here it is, the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things, all the clothing, food, the things that you know and your Father knows that you have need of, He will provide them for you. They're going to be provided by the Father. He said, therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. It has enough sufficient trouble of its own. For each day has enough trouble of its own. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, this is your word. This is your word. And so God, take your word and apply it to our hearts. I thank you, Lord, that uh, your Holy Spirit would reveal Christ to us. I thank you that your Holy Spirit would give us wisdom, grant unto us wisdom and understanding. Lord, that's the principal thing we ask for. And I pray, God, that our finances, Lord, would be blessed, that your favor would be unleashed upon our finances as we stay faithful and obedient 
to your wonderful voice. We give you praise in Christ's name. And everybody said? So Sermon on the Mount, it's interesting, this is what we call the Christian Constitution. Jesus uninterruptedly gives us Matthew 5, 6, and 7, three chapters devoted to red letters. Jesus uses the natural acoustics of the Sea of Galilee, and he begins to preach, he begins to share, he begins to communicate the truth. And what he tells us in the Sermon on the Mount is that what happens when we actually take the gospel of Jesus Christ and we live it out, what does that look like? Now, that not only has personal ramifications, it has public ramifications, it has, it has spiritual ramifications, it even has um, um, economic uh, ramifications, economical ramifications. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. Now, we get to this area of money and possessions, and Jesus tells us three things that we can draw out of the text. He tells us, number one, how money controls us. He talks about how money exercises power over us, how it does, how that money, how that mammon controls our lives. Then he, after he talks about how money experiences or controls us, he says then why money exercises power of us. So now that we know how it exercises power, then we look at why it exercises power. And then thirdly and finally, he tells us how we can break the power, how we can break the power of money's control on our lives. So let's jump straight in. First of all, let's talk about how money exercises power over us. Now, from the outset of this passage, you're going to see that one of the curious things that has stunned Bible interpreters for about the last 2,000 years is this inclusion of this great, little, small, seemingly insignificant illustration about the eye. And Jesus places this eye illustration right in the smack middle of this conversation about resource, about finance. And it's very, very intentional. He says this about the eye. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. And notice he says, if the eye is good... The whole body will be full of light. But he said if the eye is bad, then the whole body will be full of darkness. Now let me tell you what that means. Very simply, we are in this room right now and there is light. There is light that's protruding forth. It's flooding around our bodies. And if your eye works correctly, your cornea, your your eye works correctly, your iris works correctly, then what's going to happen is your eye is going to take in that light... And then, by that light, you will be able to move your body through the room without falling. You'll be able to find the aisle. You'll be able to sit down on a chair. You won't stumble. You won't fall. You'll be able to actively use your body in the way that you should use your body. This is basically saying, if your eye is not working, even though there's a lot of a light around your body, your body is, in a sense, the darkness. Even though outwardly the skin is taken in light, the body cannot move apart from the function and faithfulness of that eye. That's what he's saying. In other words, if your eye is not working, there is a sense in which no other part of your body can work correctly or can see. So if your eye is not working, your body is in darkness even though the whole room is flooded with light. Your body can't move forward. So you say, and what does that have to do with money? It's interesting. This is a really interesting text. What in the world does that have to do with finances? What does that have to do with anything? In fact, if we just look critically at the text, we can see verse 19 through 21 is all about money. We see that verse 24 through 34 is all about money, all about resource. But then we get to this little I statement, verse 22 and 23, that seemingly is out of place. What is this saying doing right here? Well, it's a bit easier for us to understand Jesus' point. If you go to Luke 11 and 12, any good Bible student is going to realize we've got four Gospels, not just one to interpret. And the Bible is the best interpreter of itself. So we're going to go to another moment where Jesus himself then communicates this in Luke's account. So in Luke chapter 11 and 12, Jesus stands up and he gives this same statement. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body, the eye is light, full of light, the body be full of light, the eye is dark, the whole body be in darkness. And then he goes on to talk about money. Now here's what's amazing. You get to Luke 12... And Jesus makes this statement. He says in Luke chapter 12, he says, Now watch out for greed. Watch out for materialism. Now what is he saying? It's really, really interesting. It's intriguing. He's saying that greed and materialism, can I just define materialism for us? Materialism is an inordinate desire and or dependence on money and material things. It's a desire that's inordinate and it is a ultimate dependence on money or material things. And he says, greed and materialism has this peculiar effect of blinding you spiritually. Greed and materialism makes your eye dark. 
it distorts the way you see things. When you are greedy or when you are materialistic, it distorts your perception of everything around you, the way you see everything. Now you say, Craig, what do you mean by that? Well, let me give you some examples. First of all, materialism has the power to blind you to materialism. Materialism blinds you to materialism. What Jesus is saying is very interesting. He said that, that, that ultimately the eye becomes dark and then how great is that darkness? Let me, let me, let me cast it in this light. I never forget when I first became a believer, 16 years old. I was 18 years old. I was a part of a ministry um, where I was beginning to learn to be discipled and people and God had faithfully placed mentors in my life. And there was a man in our church that was having a monthly uh, meeting, uh, men's breakfast. And he was teaching. He was asked to teach on the seven deadly sins. And so, you know, he's teaching on the seven deadly sins, lust, he's teaching on pride, he's teaching on envy, he's teaching on anger, and of course, you've got greed in there. And I never forget, his pastor, our pastor, came to him and he said, hey, do you uh, advertise to all the men what topic, what uh, sin you're going to hit for the month? And he said, yeah. He said, well, let me, get this, let me get this right. He's saying, so you're telling me that everybody that you advertise to about the breakfast knows what sin is going to be talked or discussed that day? And he said, yeah. And he said, man, he said, I don't know if that's the best idea. He said, when you get to greed and you communicate greed, he said, you're not going to have anybody show up. And he thought, and he was right. It was the worst attended men's breakfast of the whole entire year. This breakfast where they were going to talk about greed. And I thought about that as a 19-year-old, 18-year-old. I thought about why. Let me tell you why. I'll tell you why. It's not that they were hostile to a subject on greed. It's not that they were saying, oh, materialism, I don't want to talk about that. No, no, no. It's that everyone in America is just so absolutely sure it's not them. Everybody here in the Western world, we're just so absolutely staunch and, and understanding and sure that we are not greedy or materialistic. In other words, Jesus said this sin is different from every other sin. That's why Jesus said this is an eye sin. It's not a body sin, it's an eye sin. This darkens your eye spiritually. Listen, you don't have to say, I've never had to say as a pastor, and Jesus never said to anybody in the Gospels, Jesus never said, watch out. You might be committing adultery. No, if you're committing adultery, you know you're committing adultery, right? You don't say, oh, you're not my wife. Thought you were my wife. That never happens. Okay? That never happens. That's not going to take place. That will not transpire. But Jesus says, you do have to watch out because greed might take a hold of your heart. Watch out. Materialism might grab hold of you. You see, greed, unlike any other of those seven sins, hides itself. Anger doesn't hide itself. Bitterness doesn't hide itself. Envy doesn't hide itself. Lust doesn't hide itself. It will break forth in your life. But what hides itself is greed. Greed is very, very hidden. Very hidden. It blinds you in a way that adultery doesn't blind you. You know if you're committing adultery. Now, over the years, I thought about this late last night. I have been a pastor for over a decade. Over the years, I have never, I'll be honest with you, um, People come to the pastor and, you know, they seem like a priest-type figure, pastor, so I'm going to confess my sins to you, which is great. It's healthy. So they come and they want to confess sins. And I've had them come into my office and they've confessed anger and they've confessed bitterness and they've confessed lust and pornography and they've confessed pride. But did you know in over 10 years, I have never, and I'll be honest with you, I've never had one person ever come to me, ever, in 10 plus years, ever sit down and said, Pastor, I'm just so materialistic. I have never in 10 years had somebody come to me and say, I just want to confess sin to you. I'm so absolutely greedy. Why? Because it blinds us. It blinds us. I gets dark. Our body's full of darkness. Jesus is saying, listen, you just don't ask. The problem with it is you just don't ask. You just don't consider it a possibility. You don't consider it a possibility that you could be greedy. You think of rich people. When we think of greedy, we think of rich people. See, here's the problem with living in America. You think of people who spend tons of money. And the trouble is, in America, we all have friends who are much more extravagant with money than we are. In fact, let me take it a step farther. Most of us have one family member that's more extravagant with money than we are. And that's all it takes. That's all it takes to get it out of your mind. That's all it takes to clear your conscience. So what happens is you in your mind find one person who spends more money than you lavishly, and you just have to know one person that's greedy, and you don't even think you're greedy. It, it, it won't even be considered as a possibility that you're materialistic. And that's why I learned as a 19-year-old, that's why these men didn't come to the meeting. They were bored. They weren't against greed. They were absolutely certain they weren't greedy. This didn't affect them. They were certain they were not materialistic. Listen, if you are there this morning and you say, man, this is not a problem of mine. 
That's a very bad sign. Okay? Well, this is not an issue of mine. That's a very, very bad sign. Because this is one of the sins, unlike any other sin, that has a symptom. And that symptom is you are sure it's not you. You are sure it's not you. You're sure. Jesus is saying, watch out. Greed is a sin of the eye. It darkens your eye. Let me give you some examples of how it darkens your eye. Can I talk that? Let me talk about how it darkens your eye. Number one, sometimes you choose a job in America. Materialism has the power to get you to choose a job, not that you love. Materialism has the power to get you to choose a job, not that you're good at. Materialism has the power to get you to choose a job, not that will help people, but one that will simply give you money. And you do it because you will get a certain status in life, and you have a certain level of money or income, and you choose a job based on that. Now listen to me. You can last about five or ten years on adrenaline. Okay? I've seen it. Oh my gosh. How many, how many casualties of, of wrong choice in this area? Okay? Been around this age group most of my ministry. But you hit about the 30 mark, the 32, the 35 mark, and all of a sudden your adrenaline for that job dies, it wanes, and then you're stuck one day asking the question, why in the world did I choose this job? What happened to you, bro? What happened to you, lady? Your eye was dark. That's what happened. Your eye got blinded. You got blinded. I'm not saying everyone does this. Please hear me. I'm not saying, but a lot of people in our culture do this. Let me give you another example. Materialism doesn't just blind you in the ability to choose a job. It blinds you in the conduct of your job. Many companies in America right now are making bukus of money, but those companies are hurting towns. They're making all kinds of money, but they're hurting their community around this. They're hurting the people. And we all know that, and everybody at the business knows that. The CEO, CEO knows that, and we all know that, and there are people in this company, and are they saying, ha, 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 woo, woo, in order to make money, I'm ruining the environment I live in. No, they're not saying that. What are they doing? They're just not asking. They just don't want to talk about it. Let's don't ask the question. Please don't ask the question. Let's don't talk about it. We know it. We know it's hurting people, but I'm still living my life off of hurting people, so I want to keep living my life so that people keep hurting. Materialism has a great, great power. It's a real, real strong power. Greed has amazing, amazing power to control us, to exercise power over us. You don't want to ask the hard questions. The CEO doesn't want to say, are our, are our deals or the deals we're company, our company is making, is this really helping people or hurting people? Is it really helping the town or hurting the town? You know, we think about the, like the lottery. Yes, it helps the schools, but it really hurts those that are already in poverty. Right? So again, we feel it's a lesser of two evils sometimes, but this is, the way, this is the way we live. We don't want to ask these questions. You don't want to know. Why? That's the blindness Jesus is talking about. Greed doesn't go, woo, I'm gouging the poor. But if you are in a company, are you asking, is my company gouging the poor? Is my company hurting the community? You need to ask that. If you aren't even asking that, that's the dark and blind eye. That's what Jesus is saying. One more. Materialism keeps you from asking hard questions about your lifestyle. Doesn't it? Greed keeps us. You say what? Now, in, in Atlanta, in Atlanta we, have, uh, we just went over 6 million people. Uh, the 6.1 million people in metro Atlanta. So uh, I think five years from now we'll beat D.C. in population. Metro D.C. It's amazing. Some of the stats I read, like 2050, will be close to 9 million people. Okay, it's, it's unbelievable the entrepreneurship that's coming to Atlanta. It's, it's exploding. We're, we're our global city. We are a global city. I think our GDP, national GDP for our city is like number four in the entire world. Okay, so, so we're a large city. We're a growing city. And here's the amazing thing. If you're a professional in the room, now by and large, please just hear my heart. If you go to a restaurant and you eat after lunch, after church, by and large, the majority of the middle class people that you eat that restaurant with are making around the same amount of money. So the average working people, working class, they're making around the same amount of money. But if you're a professional, that is to say you've made entrance into the professional world, one of the problems with that is this, the kinds of people you come into contact with. So if you're a professional, you start rubbing shoulder with many times your friends are making 10 times the amount you're making. They're making 50 times the amount you're making, right? And so you get into those circles, and there is always somebody, once you get a ticket into that world, you have a pretty good job, but there's somebody in your job who has 10 times what you make, or they make 50 times what you make. And, and don't forget, let me just pause real quick. The person who is making 10 times more than you, you think that person's rich. They're making six figures. You're thinking, woo! They are, they are absolutely rich. You know what they're doing? They're hanging out with people who are making 10 times more than they do. That's why nobody in America ever feels rich. There's maybe one or two people in America that feel rich. They know they're rich, but no one else knows they're rich. 
because you're always rubbing shoulders with somebody about 10 times your income or 50 times your income. Probably one or two people know they're rich, but no one else does, and you, and you don't ask these questions. You don't ask questions like this. Do I really need to spend this much money? We don't ask questions like this. Do I need to put this much money into my house? We don't ask questions like this. Do I really need to be paying this much for an apartment? We don't ask questions like this. Do I need to be spending this much money on clothes? Because what we do is we immediately think of other people who spend way much more and we don't ask the question. We don't ever say, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's have a family staff meeting. Sunday night, family staff meeting, let's talk. Okay, mom, dad, husband, wife, let's talk for a minute. All right, here we go. Um, Are there ways that we could be giving more money to the church, more money to the poor, more money to our friends, more money to their neighbors? Are there ways... That we could be much more radically generous if we change this. Could we be more radically generous if we change that? We don't want to ask. We don't even want to think about it. I know you don't want to think about it because I don't want to think about it. In 1635, there was a man named uh, Robert Kane. He was a member of the First Congregational Church of Boston. That was the only congregational church in Boston in 1635. We weren't even a recognized nation yet. And He was doing well as a businessman, but his elders disciplined him for the sin of greed. Now, they didn't excommunicate him, but what they did is they suspended him from the Lord's Supper. He could not have the Lord's Supper. And they suspended him from any leadership engagement. They disciplined him. You say, Craig, why? Because he was selling his product at 6% profit. So the product that he had, he had 6% profit. And they had decided three years ago as a church that if you were a Christian, you were allowed to sell your product at 4% profit. So they found out he sold his at 6% and they disciplined him. Now, some of you are out there going, where is he going with this illustration? Okay, listen, don't just breathe, okay? They realized that when you're committing adultery, you know you're doing it. But when you're greedy, you never know. You never know. Now, I've told this story to people and they're like, ah, Bull. Bible never says anything about 4%. I can get 40% off profit if I want to. Okay? Well, let me prove something to you real quick. They sat down as Christians and they said, Jesus, man, he talks about money all the time. He's constantly saying, watch out for greed. He's constantly saying, watch out for materialism. He's constantly saying, giving all your money away, especially in Luke, but in the other Gospels as well. Y'all, it's frightening. It's frightening how many times Jesus talks about money. I told them in the earlier gathering, if I preached and Pastor Chad preached, we can't preach on money as often as Jesus preached on money or we wouldn't have a church. We wouldn't have a church. You would not have any churches in the Western world if, we, if pastors talked about money the amount of times Jesus talked about money. You wouldn't have any people show up. I mean, you would never have anybody show up. He's always, he's talking about money like every other page. He's talking about resource all the time. And I mean, when you talk about money, everyone gets quiet in church, right? Like, everybody gets quiet. Nobody leaves the door singing here in just a little bit on money days, okay? They never leave singing. No, no, no jump in their step. I mean, no joy, right? Just, no one leaves that way. We talk about money. But Jesus talked about money all the time. And so they get together. This community does. First Congregational Church of Boston. And they say, we have a problem. They said that there are some business practices that have to be greedy. But how will we know? They said there are some people that are entrepreneurs that have to be greedy to get their career off the ground. So how will we know? They have to exploit other people to get money for themselves so that the career can take off. But how will we know when that happens? So in our time and in our place, they said, let us decide what is a greedy lifestyle. What are greedy business practices? And so they, by consensus, please hear me, by consensus, they arrived at this. It was mutual, and they said it was 4% is the much as Christians could make. And they held each other accountable, and they made the decision, and this guy knew that decision was 4%, and he raised it, tried to do it behind their back. He raised it 6%. He got discipline. Sounds a lot like Ananias and Sapphira in Acts, doesn't it? He knew it was consensual. Now, I am not saying today in our world that an economy is as complex as ours and that the differing fields that are so various, I am not saying that we ever could come up with one clean figure that says this is what greed is and this is not what greed is. Even if we got together in our own locale, our own local church, and we got together and we consensually came up, we still could not come up with a number that's a nice, clean-cut number. But here's the point. Who are you accountable to in your finances? Here's the point. What Christians have gotten together with you, if you're single, or you and your spouse if you're married, 
and said, let's talk about how much money we're spending on each other, ourselves, and the people around us. Let's just, let's, just kind of talk, let's just kind of divulge and communicate about this. Who have you authorized in your life? What Christians have you authorized to say, hey, let's take a look at our finances? Now listen, y'all, you have to talk about it with somebody. You have to have some standard. And you can't trust yourself. Oh, I'm good. I trust myself. No, that's the problem. Your eyes dark. You can't do it. Jesus says, no, no. You can't trust yourself with it. You have to have voices. You have to have the, the multitude of counselors. And I know what you're thinking. I know what I'm thinking. This is, I don't even want to think about it, Craig. Let's, don't, woo, let's go. Let's move to the next topic. Let's don't have conversation about this. When I spend money, I don't want to think, did I really have to spend that? I just want to spend it. Okay? I don't want to think, did I really need those shoes? I just want the shoes. And I got a debit card to swipe. Well, now stick, you know, stick it in and then punch my number because it's got a chip. But I just want to, I want to give the cash and I want to go. I don't want to think about this. And that's Jesus' whole point about greed. Is that money has the power to keep you from asking questions about how you spend your money and how you make your money. Money has that power. That's the power of greed, y'all. The power of greed is to not ask. The power of greed is just don't talk about it. We live in the most wealthy society. Can I just, let me just kind of wrap our minds for a moment. We live in the most wealthy society in the history of the world, especially in the last 30 years. Right now, at least 75% of the world's wealth is in the hands of about 5% of the world's people. Which is pretty much America. And if you're a professional in this room, that is normal working class, but you're a professional, you, that means you're in the top 20% of that top 5%. There's never been a group of people on the planet as wealthy as we are. Now, let me ask you. Do we then dare to say, do we dare? Ah, I'm really just doing just fine when it comes to material things. I couldn't give any more materially. I couldn't give any more of my resource. I'm kind of tapped out on my money giving. I couldn't live any more simply. I, I couldn't be any more generous with my money. The rest of the world knows better, y'all. The rest of the world knows better. The rest of the world looks at America and says, man, there's so many things you could do if you just didn't think you'd had to have that gadget. Like, you could change my whole school <laughs> based on your, like, one-month salary. You would change my entire school. The rest of the world looks at Americans and thinks, oh, man, like, if you just didn't think you had to have that TV and you didn't think you had to have that gadget, you would change our life. You would change our experience. The rest of the world sees it. So my question is, it's astounding. We live in the place we live and the time we live with the people we live, and we won't even think about the possibility that we are greedy. We won't, even, we won't even entertain that we are materialistic. And that shows the power of greed. Jesus said, your eyes dark, your whole body can't walk. It can't walk. So I thought last night, well, might as well take this conviction down to the core. Let's get it on down to the core, God, right? How do you get up and preach a message like this without conviction to the core, right? So I said, okay, let's go to the globalrichlist.com. Global Rich List. Great website. You can type in your wealth or you can type in your income and it'll give you prepare, uh, uh, what we call a comparison to the rest of the world. So let's look at what happens if you just make $50,000. I did this on my iPhone, so let's watch. All right, so this is globalrichlist.com. Comparing your salary and wealth or income compared to the rest of the world. So let's just do an annual net income of let's say $50,000. How does that relate to the rest of the world? So if you make $50,000, you're in the top 0.31% of richest people in the world by income. And that makes you the 18 millionth richest person on earth by income. Pretty astounding. Pretty astounding. You go on with that website and let's just read this together. I came across this. I thought this is. Amazing, if you'll put that up. The richest 1% in the world own more than the other 99% of humans put together. The wealth of the richest 62 people has risen by 44% since 2010, while the poorest fell by a corresponding figure. The international charity says 7.6 trillion of individuals' wealth sits in offshore tax havens. And if tax were paid on the income that they people put offshore, that that wealth generates an extra $190 billion would be available to national governments every year. Now let's go to this next one. The report claims that as much as 30% of all African financial wealth is held offshore, costing about $14 billion in lost tax revenues every year. It's enough to pay for health care that would save 4 million children a year just on the continent of Africa based upon the tax revenue of the top 1%. And their wealth held offshore in tax havens. Almost half the super rich individuals are from the United States, 17 from Europe, the rest from countries such as China, Brazil, 
in Mexico. So 99.99% of the world lives in a house smaller than your garage. In your garage. So my question is, can we just write it off and say, ah, not an issue for me. Not an issue. So we looked at how money exercises power of us. And let's look at why. Why? Why does money exercise power of us? I'm going to be very brief. The answer is in this one little verse. Look what he said. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You ready? The place where your heart really rests is revealed by money. The place where your heart really finds its rest is revealed by where you spend your money. Now, money, two ways here. Money, number one, is a way of some people getting significance. For some people, they see money as a way of getting significance. Jesus says one of the reasons we need so much money and we spend so much money on ourselves and we don't give it away is because our money is our significance. The fact that we are able to live in a certain place, the fact that we're able to go to certain coffee shops, the fact that we're able to eat at certain restaurants, the fact that we're able to wear certain clothes, the fact that we're in certain social circles, that makes us feel important. And you know it's true, y'all. Can we just be honest for a minute? Okay, I know it's tough, but let's just be honest. We know it's true. We have a tendency to do this. In America, the higher up economically we get, we don't just look at other people who are below us economically and say, you are below me economically. We say, you are below me. Okay? I'm not saying Christians should. I'm saying it's what we do. We don't say, oh, you're economically below me. We just say, you're below me. You don't have to be very well off, folks. You just have to be middle class. Middle class people in general in America feel superior to the poor. We do. We do. I didn't say you do. I said we do. We feel superior to the poor. Oh, we feel sorry for the poor. We pity the poor. We give to the poor. We do whatever we can for the poor, but we feel superior to them. And there's no reason for us to, right? Like, if we started out in the same place they did with the same parents with the same socioeconomic status, would we do much better? I don't know. Maybe we would. Maybe we wouldn't. Maybe we'd do better. Maybe we wouldn't do better. But we automatically feel it. It's so automatic. It's like ingrained in our culture, our consumeristic culture, our capitalistic nation. It's, it's ingrained. We just automatically feel it. We just automatically feel superior. so automatic. And many take money and we say, you know what? That's my significance. It's what makes me feel important. But the other hand, there's other people. Other people are different. They take money and they use it as their security. So catch this. Some people take money and use it for approval. Others use money for control. So some people take money and they say, oh, that's my approval, that's my significance. Other people take money and they say, that's my control. And some people use money in order to say, I feel important. But the way other people say is say, I need money because I feel safe. Now, don't forget what I'm saying here. I'm asking this question, okay? If you are not giving away right now your money in eye-popping proportions, and if you're not giving away your money so generously that the world looks at the Christian that you are and says, woo, that's a different life, okay? If you right now are saying, man, I find it hard to be generous sometimes, then... Why? One answer is that money has that power because it's your significance. Number two, that money has that power. It's a possibility because you see money as your security. You feel like if I have money, then I have control in an uncontrollable world. It's the only thing I can control. I can't control anything else. Everything else I can't control. So if I got money, I can control my life. I can control my future. You know what Jesus says? Hey, y'all, yo, running after these things cannot, what, add one single second to your life. Tragedy this week, right? Pastor that I've talked to multiple times over the last year with my own issue. He, 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 he didn't make it through Monday evening. He, he committed suicide. 30-year-old man. And, and, it, and it rocked me bad in a way that I, I'm not ready to, right, to respond. But, but I, I look at a situation like that. And now that everybody around him that he reached out to that day and texted that day, nothing matters for them. Their job doesn't matter for them. The house they live in doesn't matter for them. What they're doing with their money doesn't matter for them. It's about life. And that's what Jesus is saying. Can you buy money at a moment to your life? Money can't stop broken relationships, y'all. Money can't stop death. Money can't stop terminal illness. Money can't stop cancer. Money can't stop anything. It can't stop anything. And Jesus says, hey, you can't add one moment to your life by fretting and worrying over these things. I'll never forget, I heard Elizabeth Elliot's uh, second husband. Uh, she outlived three of her husbands. And uh, her second husband is a college professor. Um, and this college professor uh, tells a story, told the story, that there were two young women that were in his class that were not Christians. And they come to the college in their fall semester, their freshman year, and they meet Christ, and they feel the call to be missionaries. So these 18-year-old girls, they get done with their first year of school, and they go back home, and they tell their parents, hey, we want to be missionaries. We're going to be foreign missionaries. And the parents say, oh, no. 
It said, now, dear, you've had a religious experience. How beautiful. How wonderful. But you need some security. So before you go off to the mission field, I'm going to need a couple things. Number one, you've got to get your master's degree. We want you to have a master's degree. Number two, we want you to have taken a job or two so you've got a track record. Okay? And number three, we need you to save a lot of money and put it in the bank. You need some security. Okay? Well, it comes back, they come back to their professor at the next semester and they say to their professor, what do you say? What do we say to our parents? And he said, let me tell you what I'd say to your parents. Here's what I would say. Let me tell you. Tell them we are on a little ball of rock. And we, on this little ball of rock, are spinning through space. It's called Earth. And one day, under each one of us, a trap door is going to open up. And you can't get off this planet alive. It's going to open up. And one thing, we don't even know if the little ball is going to hit anything else. But number two, that trap door is going to open up. And when you fall through, you're going to fall through either into the everlasting arms of God or you're going to fall into the great abyss. So, Mom, you think a master's degree is going to give me some security? You think a large sum of money is going to give me security? That's what Jesus is saying here, right? He said, he says, money can't give you significance. When you make it your significance, you actually become arrogant person that no one likes. And when you think money can give you some security, the fact is it can't stop death, it can't stop tragedy, it can't stop anything. So how do we break the power of money in our lives? How do we break the power of greed? How do we break the power of materialism? Well, the answer is this. How do we get to a place where generous? That's our third question. Look at it, verse 19. This is what he said. He says, Do not store up treasures on earth where rust and moth destroy or break in and steal, but store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and cannot steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Now, literally, ready? He says, don't treasure earthly treasures, treasure heavenly treasure. Don't treasure earthly treasures, but treasure heavenly treasure. This is important to know. Y'all, look, watch. Everybody on the planet, at the center of their soul, they have something that they treasure. Everybody. Every human being has something at the center of their soul they treasure. You say, what does it mean to treasure something? Here's what it means. It means to look at something with your physical eyes, and then here you do. You fill your heart with the beauty and value of it. Okay? That's what your treasure is. So, to treasure something is to say, if I have this, everything is worth it. If I have this, all other things are worth it. Treasuring something says, if I have this, then I am worth it. My life is worth it. If I could just have blank. In other words, we all have something. It might be money. It might be career. It might be status. It might be sex. It might be romance. It might be having a perfect little family in America. But here's the deal. Whenever you say, if I just had this, everything would be worth it. You look at it, and it's your treasure, and you say, man, it would all be worth it if I could get that. We all have something. You've seen the Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings is about this special ring, right? It's a little special ring in Lord of the Rings. And it was so special that it's beautiful. And whoever owns it kind of comes up under the power of the ring. You're in essence being subjugated to the power of that ring. Because you look at it and what do they do? They call it the precious. They look at the ring and they call it the precious. Jesus is saying that. He's saying at the center of every one of you and every human soul is the precious. Now something you have looked at and you say this is precious. This is the thing that if I have it, then I'm worth it. Now we all have something, but listen to me. Whatever the precious is in your life, are you ready? You are enslaved to it. If the precious is Jesus, you're enslaved to it. If the precious is sex, you're enslaved to it. If the precious is marriage... You're going to make a lot of bad mistakes before you actually get to the one that you think sticks. Man, haven't we seen this? Whatever it is that you treasure, you become enslaved to. Anything that your soul treasures, once your soul treasures something, you will pay any price for it. You will do whatever it takes to get whatever you call your treasure, folks. I mean... Come on, we've all had family members touched by drug addiction. I mean, you will kill your mom. You'll steal from your mom. You will will murder your dad. You will do whatever you've got to get to get the resource for your treasure. 
There is no price you will not pay for your treasure. You will. Your human soul was made by God for that reality. That's what we treasure. That's what we desire. Now the Bible says, are you ready? Every treasure but Jesus will insist that you die to purchase it, but Jesus himself is the one treasure who died to purchase you. So the Bible says that every other treasure is going to constantly tell you, you got to die if you want me. you got to die to me if you want me. you got to be killed if you want me. But Jesus says, I'm the only treasure that actually died to purchase you. Listen, anything else you make your supreme value in life will make and will say to you, die for me. Be killed for me. But if you make Jesus Christ the supreme value, he is the one who has said, I have died for you. Not die for me, I have died for you. So how do you make Jesus Christ your treasure? Only if you make him your treasure will you actually be, in a sense, free from money. So let me tell you what it means to... I'm going to come back to that. Free from money. How can you treasure Jesus? How can you treasure Jesus? Well, let's just think for a minute. What did he do with his treasure? What did Jesus do with his treasure? He had the ultimate treasure. Living in heaven. Eternal son of God. He had ultimate status. He had ultimate security. He's the son of the father. But on the cross... He was utterly stripped. On the cross, he was utterly stripped. I know we see him in a ro- I know we see him in a loincloth. He was not in a loincloth. He was he was completely stripped nude and he was crucified nude. And all of that physical, remember they cast garment, they cast uh, lots for his garments. All of that physical stripping was just an echo of a spiritual stripping. All that was was an outward manifestation of what's happening inward. Why? He lost all his treasure. You say, why, Pastor Craig? Because he died for something. Now, you only die for that which is your precious. You only give your life for that which is your value. So what that means is this. is Jesus Christ must have looked at me, and he must have looked at you, and he must have looked at us as hurting humanity. He said, if I have them, even going to hell will be worth it. Jesus looked at us, helpless. And he said, if I get them, even having my father's back turned to me will be worth it. I'll pay whatever price for my treasure called Craig Mosgrove. I'll pay whatever price I got to pray. I would ultimately rather not be God than be God without Craig. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. I would rather lay down my life than have my life for eternity without my children. And Isaiah 53 tells us by prophecy that Jesus, what did he do? He saw the results of his suffering and he was satisfied. 1 Peter 2 and 9, the the apostle Peter says, you're a chosen race, you're a holy nation, you're a royal priesthood. You ready? Ready? He says, you are God's prized possession or his purchased possession. And that means you are his treasure. Folks, unless you know that he was willing to lose all his treasure so he could make you his treasure, unless you realize that he looked at you and he felt like, if I have them, then anything's worth it. Nothing would be worth me losing them. Or let me say it this way. Jesus looked at you and said, anything would be worth saving them. And when you know he treasures you and he cares for you and loves you like that, that and that alone frees you from the love of money. Y'all, it doesn't just free you from the love of money. It frees you from everything. (laughs) It's like, who cares anymore? Who cares if I'm popular? Who cares if I have approval? I was treasured enough for God to give all. To give all. So here's one of the ways you know, spiritually, if money has lost its power. I'm going to give you three of them. Number one, how do you react to rich people? How do you react to rich people? Now, let me make this clear. Many of you, you resent rich people. We look at rich people and we're disdainful towards rich people because of their possessions and what they have. And you feel superior to them. And listen to me, that shows that money still has power over you. If you dislike rich people, that shows that a lack, quite honestly, of humility and, and a lack of spiritual wealth in you. Because the gospel is you're a sinner. Watch this. However, if you're on the other side, and if you can't believe a rich person invited you into their life, woo, you're blown away by rich people. <gasps> you let me see this? You let me in on this? You're astounded and amazed? This is incredible! That also shows you that money still has power over you. You ready? This is why. The gospel is that you are more sinful than you ever dared believe. 
and you are more loved than you ever dared hope. The gospel is you are more sinful than you ever dared believe and you are more loved than you ever dared hope. Now watch this, ready? The more sinful part keeps you from feeling superior to rich people. The more loved part keeps you, what? From feeling inferior to rich people. So therefore, the gospel really puts you in a place where you just don't really care about money anymore. The only way you know that money has no power over you anymore is you're not, you're not, you're not impressed by rich people and you don't get mad at rich people. You just... Oh, money, cool. The best way to see that money has no power of you is that you can love rich people. Here's the second thing. You can also respect poor people. You want to know if money has no power over you? You can respect poor people. You look at them and you respect them. And ready? You seek to learn from them. You don't just always go to tell them. You seek to learn from them. You want to know whether or not money has power over your life? When you approach rich people, do you always have something to say or something to hear? Or, excuse me, poor people. Do you have seeking something to listen to them, to learn from them? And by and large, I'm not saying this is true for everybody, but there's a tendency to get around poor people and we look down our noses at them. So how do you respond to poor people? How do you respond to rich people? How do you respond to poor people? And one of the ways you can see money has lost its power over you because of the gospel you've received. That gospel humbles you. That gospel melts you. That gospel, it lifts you up. And you have no trouble loving rich people and you have no trouble loving poor people. But here's the third sign. You know money has lost its power over you. You get really generous. You get really generous. Money has lost its strength when you become really generous. You know what's interesting? Look at verse 22. The Bible says, if your eye is good. You know the Greek word for good? I think more and more Bible translators are going to change this because the Greek word is a compound word. And that Greek word good, if your eye is good, you know what the other meaning for that word is? If your eye is generous. Your whole body's full of light. What's he saying? He's saying a Christian who's really been freed from the love of money by finding Jesus as their treasure, you know what you do? You get a generous eye. You're always looking for people to bless. You walk around looking for people to bless. Your eyes always set towards generosity. You're always set towards trying to bless people. You're always set towards trying to help people. Now, here's the big question. How much money, Pastor Craig, do I give away? That's what people ask. How much money? Well, the only way we answer that is we've got to look at what Jesus did. When Jesus treasured you, he treasured you sacrificially. Now, if you want to respond to Jesus, you must not live out the cross of Jesus Christ only in your relationships, but also in your finances. Follow me here. Most people don't sacrifice in giving away money. What that means is that, listen, you follow, this community is amazing at following Jesus in the cross with relationships. That is to say, you personally sacrifice to help others, right? And, and, and if we are to continue to move forward, that means we also have to take up a cross in our financial life. So it means it takes personal sacrifice to me. Now, we've done this. Isn't it amazing? God, praise God. Church of 200 plus people, $180,000 in four and a half months. Praise God. Amen? But if we're going to continue to be it, that means we have to take up our cross economically. So that means, listen, if you are going to respond to Jesus the way he responded to you, that means this year you would have to give away so much money that it actually changes the way you live. It changes. It affects, it cuts into the way you live. If you don't give enough money away that really makes a difference in the way you live your life, then there is no cross and you aren't really responding to Jesus the way he responded to you. For most people in most places and most time, the tithe is the goal. We always talk about the tithe. The tithe is holy. It's the first fruits. And it is. And God, no doubt, has established the tithe. He established the tithe pre-law. Abraham tithed to Melchizedek long before God gave the law at Sinai. People say, oh, it's the law. No, it wasn't. It predated the law. The tithe wasn't in the law. The tithe was before the law. It's greater than the law. It's outside the law. So tithe is good, right? But it's kind of like a starting point. Because most people, most times, most people, the tithe is what God asks. But if you see what Jesus did for you and how he died for you, have you ever had any thought in your mind like the tithe's not enough? No? Yes? Does anybody ever th- I mean, after all, what if Jesus would have tithed his blood? You'd still be lost, wouldn't you? What if he gave 10% of his blood, then he went to the doctor, stitched it up, and kept going, living? Well, 90% still in his body means I'm 100% still in my sin. Right? Like, what if you had tithe this blood? He, he went way beyond the tithe. He poured out his whole blood. Poured out all of his blood on the mercy seat. He poured it out. And after all, you think about it. For most people, 10% would be a cut. So hear me. Hear my heart. 10%, if you gave 10%, it would cut you. It would hurt. So awesome. But I'm just saying something. In America, increasingly, increasingly, for many people... 
There is many people for whom 10% does not make a dent. It doesn't make a dent. And you see the 10% is not the point. When the Bible says, how much should I be given away? The 10% is kind of like a rule of thumb. You know what the, you know what the standard is? The cross! 10% is not the standard. The cross is the standard. The cross. And what did God do for me at the cross? He gave his all. So I'm going to ask you this question. Is there a cross in your economic life? Is there a cross? If Jesus is your treasure, you'll love the rich, you'll respect the poor, and you'll give away sacrificially. This is, by the way, the reason why the early church was so sacrificial. We got this great uh, second century believer. His name was Diognetus. D-I-O-G-N-E-T-U-S. Interesting. It's got e from Ephraim to Diognetus. It was a great epistle. And interestingly enough, in this epistle, this is what he said. He talked about how early Christians and how they were so generous and how they were so popular and why they stunned the known world. Here's what he said. You ready? He said, we share our table with everybody, but we don't share our bed with everybody. He said, in other words, the pagans are promiscuous with their body, but stingy with their money. And he said, the Christians are very stingy with their body and promiscuous with their money. Isn't that amazing? What would our culture look like if people in your neighborhood were very, very stingy with their body and sexual integrity, but very promiscuous with their finances? That would be a good neighborhood. Come on, parents, let me just say it real quick. Where would you rather have your kid live? In a neighborhood where everybody's promiscuous with their body and sleeping around? What effect would that have on the children of the neighborhood, right? Or would you rather live in a neighborhood where everybody's so stingy with their sex, with their body, and they're just so promiscuous with their finances? They're just giving away generously. That is a good neighborhood. And he says, listen, this is why the Christians were so amazing. That's why they're so popular, because pagans shared their body and not their money, but, but Christians shared their money and not their body. Wow, that's great for our culture. So there's tremendous public ramifications to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, here's how I want to close. That's to speak to the how, the why we break the power of money over our life. Now, let me tell you some very practical things of how we establish financial stewardship in a way that God... In a way that's, that we would consider God honoring, okay? Now listen to me. If you're in here right now and you're in a place of financial stress, I want to be honest with you. If you're in a place of financial stress, you need to know, number one, there is a target on your back from the enemy. It, there is. There is. Because financial stress brings about more stresses than any other thing in our relationships and our marriages. I've seen marriages totally end because of financial stress. I've seen, I've seen husbands check out emotionally, which checks out physically, which checks out in adultery because of physical financial strain. I have seen it. There is an enemy. But here's number two. That's why you need to be here and listening to this series because what God's trying to do is he's trying to stop your current mode of living and rescue you. He's, that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to jump into your life to get it in order. To say, this is how I want to bless your finances. This is how I want you to store up treasures that are not earthly, but treasures that are heavenly. Now listen, when we are struggling financially, uh, this is what we normally say. We come to leaders in our life and we say, what I need is more money. <laughs> right? What I need is more money. And if somebody's wise, they're going to look at us and say, no, 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 you don't need more money. That won't fix the problem. You don't need more income. You need more understanding. Okay? You don't need more money. You need more wisdom. This is, in fact, what uh, Solomon said. He said, get wisdom. How much better it is than gold. He said, hey, just get some understanding. Why? Because it's more preferable to silver. It's better than gold. It's better than silver. That's what he's saying. Listen, for most of us, our issue is not our income. Our issue is our understanding. It doesn't matter how much money you have if you don't have the understanding to manage the money you have. Let's just dream for a minute. You ready? Let's imagine you make $500,000 a year annually. Woo, that's a dream. That's a dream. Life would look a little different than what it does right now, right? Hopefully in ways that doesn't comfort us, but that allows us to bless others. Or let's go back and preach the beginning of the message again, okay? But imagine you make $500 annually. Listen. It doesn't matter if you make $500,000 annually if you make $600,000 worth of bad mistakes annually. <laughs> oh, if I just had $35,000, they get $35,000. Oh, if I just had $45,000. Oh, if I just had four, I get $45,000. Oh, if I had $60,000. Woo-hoo-hoo! If I, you get $60,000. If I had $75,000 as a household income, you get $75,000. Oh, if I had $125,000. You don't need more income, you need more understanding. You need more understanding. You need more wisdom. So for many of us, we need to stop pursuing more income and start pursuing how can I get more wisdom. 
And listen, here's what happens. When you say, how can I get more wisdom, not how much you get more income, guess what God does? Wisdom starts flowing, and you get favor on your income. You get favor on your income. God, I want wisdom, and then God puts favor. Listen, this is what he said in Proverbs 19. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's an important verse. Leave it up. Listen, that's not saying, can I tell you what it's not saying? Because I've heard this said before. That's not saying, you better fear God, because God will punish you if you make bad decisions. No, no, no. That's not saying that at all. This means you should be scared of living life without God's wisdom and favor. Financially speaking, can I interpret Proverbs 9.10? It says you don't fear God that he will punish you if you make financial mistakes. No, no, no. You fear making mistakes financially when God's not a part of your decision making. You fear that. So you say, God, I'm so scared of doing this financial thing without you. And when we stop worrying about increasing our income and start worrying about increasing our wisdom, things change. And I've seen it for people. God, God is not a part. For many people, God's just not a part of their financial life. Even in America. I mean, even as Christians. We just kind of see God as kind of a financial advisor. Most people, they don't pray before their purchases. They just purchase their purchase. They don't pray to ask God about wisdom and the finances. The only time they pray to God about their finances is when they need him to bail bail them out of their financial stress. What if we went to the Lord and said, God, I'm so scared of making decisions without you apart. If that happens, then wisdom starts flowing and then favor starts appearing. Now listen, I have found that that's the way it happened through most people in history. I believe in this so much. It's not just us. I want to read you the diary of a man in the earliest 20th century from someone you may know, and this is his own words. One night at age 56, I was broke. I was discouraged. In an eel in a sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan. I felt that I'd never see the dawn of another day. If you've ever been in financial stress, that's what it feels like. Is there ever daylight? I'm I'm done, right? Life is over for me. I I just, whatever, whatever night, move away. And he says, I got up, wrote farewell letters to my wife, to my oldest sons. I sealed the letters. If I did sleep, it was not a sound sleep. I rose early. I went down in the mezzanine floor, found the dining room was open, and suddenly over in the corner of the mezzanine, I heard the singing of an old Christian song. And it said, Ah, God will take care of you. You can imagine how heavy my heart was when I went in. Yet after I heard that song, God will take care of you. I came out of that room, and at that moment, I was a changed man. Within a few moments, my life was transformed. It was almost as if I had a new birth, this guy said. God will take care of me, and he did take care of me, and he did save me. And ever since then, I've been trying to serve him. Now, this is the part that got me. This is the part that got me, y'all. This is it. He said, when I finally got back on my feet, I enjoyed materially more than I'd ever enjoyed before. I'd gained immeasurably more in spiritual wealth. Catch this. Why did I gain spiritual wealth? Because I heard a song over in the mezzanine floor? No, no, no. I gained spiritual wealth. Why? Because I had learned to turn to God for guidance in all of the acts and all of the decisions of my life. By the way, this is written by a guy named J.C. Penney. J.C. Penney. And what did J.C. Penney understood and discovered? He understood that there comes a point in every Christian's life where you have to move God from being financial advisor to being managing partner of your finances. So a lot of people want God as a financial advisor, right? God, do you see anything about this investment I can't see? You see any returns? You see anything? You got anything? Just kind of fill that out for me, God. You got that? You got to just speak to me about, you know. And when you, when you, when you treat God like a financial advisor, you come to him occasionally. But his way is always the best way. Y'all ready? The difference between God as a financial advisor or your managing partner is this one thing. God's only responsible for one of them. And if you make God your financial advisor, he will not take personal responsibility for your finances. But if you make God your managing partner, he will take personal responsibility for your financial life. He will. He will be responsible. Why? Because you're doing it his way. Because you're being obedient. Because you're a good steward. Because he's Lord over your life. So to help you with that, I want to give you two wise prayers. Come on, Jesse. This is two wise prayers we can pray over our finances. Now these are wise prayers if you have lots of money or or you don't. (laughs) But I want us to start praying this over our finances. Here's number one. You ready? God, give me understanding. In fact, can we do that right now? Let's just pray it together. Ready? God, give me understanding. Come on, pray it with me. Ready? God, give me understanding. Give me understanding. Now watch this. Most people just don't understand money. 
is to understand money, right? You grow up in a home where most of your money habits are inherited and they're, most of them are bad. And then you go to schools that don't teach money management. Y'all, I didn't have one money class my entire, my entire schooling life via through the master's. And then what happens, you get done with high school and you go to colleges who don't tell us how debt works because they're funded by our debt. The whole college scene is funded by your debt. There's no other way for them to get money. So then we graduate college and we're like, whoa, adulting. This is hard. What's the deal, man? I'm in debt up to my eyeballs. I need some help here. Right? Throw a dog a bone. What's going on in my life? And so we don't recognize what it's costing us by not knowing. What did he say in Hosea 4, 6? My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Can I reinterpret that financially? People destroy themselves financially just because they don't know. They destroy themselves financially just because they don't have any understanding. Now, I want to show you the difference in understanding makes in just one area of your financial life. Now, I want your mind to be... To see how understanding makes this much of a difference in just one single area of your financial life. It's called compound interest. And some of you know what compound interest is. Some of you like compound interest. My spouse deals with the finances. I want to give you one clear illustration. I did my research. I rounded the numbers, but let me do the research. I found that the average American right now has $16,000 of credit card debt. Average American, $16,000 credit card debt. Now, if it's $16,000 of credit card debt, if in that time you pay $250 a month at 19% interest, $250 a month at 19% interest, it would take you 40 years to pay off that credit card debt. Now, that's not adding to the $16,000. That's just the $16,000. That's you cut up the card and you're just paying 19% interest, $250 a month. It's going to take you ultimately 40 years. Now, in that period of 40 years, you will have paid $105,000 in interest. So you paid $105,000 just to pay off your $16,000. Okay? So you paid $105,000 so that you could pay your $16,000 over 40 years. Now, let's imagine for a second. Let's imagine. You didn't spend $16,000 in credit card debt, but you took $16,000 and you invested in the stock market and didn't touch it. You didn't touch it. Now, I know this is a high number, but imagine you didn't touch it. You took 16, uh, in cash, like you have it in your hand, like you saved $16,000 and you put it in the bank. You put it in the stock market. And you invested, let's say, in the stock market and it got, let's say, it's high, but 12% interest. Say 12% compound interest over 40 years. Let's say you get 12%. Rounded numbers over 40 years, that turns into $1.5 million investment. Now, I'm just showing you how compound interest works for you or against you. Can I ask a great, real obvious question? What is the difference between you paying $105,000 in interest or having $1.5 million in investment? One word, understanding. That's it. Just wisdom. Just understanding moves you from $105,000 paying to $1.5 investing. Just understanding. You understand what works for you. You understand what works against you. And what happens is we don't realize what actually is hurting us, right? The whole ads are like, get this. You need this, bro. You need this. Get yourself in debt now. And they're all lying to you. They're all lying to you so that other people make the money off of the money you're borrowing so that they can live their life and then make more money off of the people that they're borrowing from so that we can continue to be in debt to the slave, right? We're indebted to this lender. And God's people, in God's way, he says, ask, listen, Greg, I'm horrible with finances. Me too. But here's the good news. You have access to the greatest financial wisdom that's ever lived. His name's Jesus. And you can say, Jesus, Holy Spirit, God, would you give me wisdom? Do you give me understanding? Surround me. And then secondly, final prayer. Say, God, give me a plan. Come on, let's say that. God, give me a plan. Come on, let's pray it again. God, give me a plan. Now, there's some very practical things there. Number one, you got to stop spending. Stop getting in more debt. That's number one plan. Here's number two plan. you got to set a budget. You have to set a budget. You don't have a budget. You don't know where your money's spending. We have a budget for everything. You have to have a budget, right? 
then you begin to debt snowball, right? So many resources, even in the Christian church, that can help you, right? To become liberated, to become free. Listen, financial freedom is not based on your income or salary. It's based on your understanding. It's based on your wisdom. And when you steward the right way, what God does is God can do what you can't do with your finances. God will put a blessing. If you give God your finances, God will give you His favor. Isn't that amazing? And the favor of the Lord cannot be stopped by anything, y'all. The blessing of the Lord is priceless. So I've been praying, Lord, let, Lord, just unleash your favor on our financial life. Just unleash your favor. I never forget. My wife and I, when I, when I met Jesus, um, you know, it just was, I don't know, it was just, it was just natural for me to tie that. You know, I'm not saying that in any arrogant way at all. I'm just, I just, it's, it's, I've never, I've never been troubled by that. Um, and so even working yards for three and a half years to buy a diamond ring to put on the left finger of my wife so I could marry her. Um, I just, I just tied. My wife and I, we've always tied. We've all been faithful and obedient. Now there's great areas we can grow. Oh my goodness, there's great areas. But I don't forget when we sold our, one of our cars to, to church plant. So we pay off the other car. Sold one of our cars, and we sold our house, and we were praying, God, Lord, we need great equity in this house so that we're able to we're able to invest here and not just continue to live in an apartment. Certainly, wasn't good living in an apartment with three young kids that are jumping up and down in homeschool all day for the guy who worked in his apartment from the house during the day, right on the floor below us. And so, God, we want a house. And so, I never forget, we went and looked at this house that we currently live in, and uh, and there was an unfinished basement, and we were desiring. Uh, to be able to finish up the basement so that we didn't have to move and that we could also be hospitable, hold people, keep people at our house. And um, I never forget, we went to the guy, we went to our realtor, and he said, this builder is like really, really tough. And so we said, we don't feel good about it. We waited a few months. He's still sitting on the house. And we come to him one day and we walk downstairs and I look at my realtor and I said, dude, I know this dude's hard. I said, but uh, I'm just going to make a deal. I'm going to offer the same, his asking price, but I want him to finish out this basement. That basement's probably 25 grand. They had to put a whole other HVA system in it, HVAC, HVAC. They had to put all the walls in, toilet, plumbing, everything. And did you know he came back? He did. The guy, and, and, and our realtor was really stunned because he works for him all the time. He said, man, no, he'll give you and finish out the basement for $4,000 more than what you asked. It's like a $30,000 deal of equity right there. He said, Craig, does that kind of stuff happen to Christians? Yes, it happens to Christians. Does it happen to people who a God's favor comes on their finances? Yeah, because he'll do things with your finances that you can't do with your own finances. But what he asks you to do is to be a good steward. He asks you to be obedient to him. Now, there's all kinds of ways that's worked itself out. All kinds of ways. I never forget, we gave our first $1,000 check above our tithe. Man, woo! 21 years old, I'm thinking, dear God, I don't know if I'm going to make it to eat ramen noodles this week. My first job was $11,200 a year as a pastor. And so I remember giving $1,000. That's like one eleventh of your, <laughs> your salary. You know? And never forget, right after that, we gave it to uh, sex trafficking. Right after that, we got a check. It was over almost double what we gave in $1,000. And I remember God doing that early on in my marriage. And Meredith and I looked at each other and said, this is going to be a thrill. This is going to be awesome. This will be a thrill because listen, this is our God who's so generous. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He did, I did not call myself to ministry. So God, I won't be responsible, Lord, for my income. I'll do whatever you call me to do and I'll use my body and I'll take care of it and I'll work as hard as I work, but you're going to take care of me because you called me. Then there's freedom. Now there's freedom. Now there's freedom. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.